So um, the cry of the chicken. People all know the cry of the baby. Famous story of the yeshiva. Amital sat with that first group of Talmidim. What makes this yeshiva different? Why should we come to your yeshiva? Tell the story of the Tzemach Tzedek who was traveling through Europe with his grandson. And they came to an inn. And they occupied the inner room of an inn. And in the outer room, a mother left her little baby asleep. And she left the apartment. And the baby started crying. And he was with his grandson. The grandson of the Tzemach Tzedek continued to, die, to learn. Tzemach Tzedek gets up, pacifies the baby. On his way back, tells his grandson, if your Torah makes you deaf to the cry of the baby, then it's a little bit hollow. It's not as deep as it should be. And the metaphor was the baby's crying, Am is crying, it's a different era, it's a different period, building a state of Israel, that's serving the army, secular people need to see yeshiva they can relate to. You have to know when to close the svarim to hear the cry of the baby. That's the famous Ravamitel story. The lesser known cry is there was once a very, very bad snowstorm in Gush. This is a long time ago, before my time. I heard this story from Mary Fisher. And it was a Shabbos morning, and it was a blizzard. And in those days, when there were blizzards in Gush, it get really bad. The snow plows didn't come. You really were basically landlocked for a couple days. It was a freezing cold Shabbos before there was heat. And all of a sudden, this kibbutznik comes by from one of the kibbutzim. I forget whether it's Kvarzion or Rostzerim. And one of these old uh, dubones, I don't know if you even know what a dubone is, a dubone of the old green army issue coats. No one could really afford coats, so people would walk around, ask anyone over 50 what a dubone is. It's these old green, that's all people had to wear. He comes walking into the Chedorochel, and he needs to speak to Rav Amitel. What's the issue? The electricity went out in the hothouse in which the little eggs and little baby chicks were growing, and... He wanted to know if there'd be a way to restart the electricity or else all these eggs would get ruined and all the little chicks would die because it was freezing cold. So Ravamital put on his own dubone and he put on his old fur hat. He wore one of these old you know, European-style men's fur hats. He's old. I'm sure you've seen them. He put it on and he walked all the way to the kibbutz and he issued a psak, whatever the psak was. So when he came back, the Talmud asked him, Rebbe, you had all this firm here. Why did you have to walk to the kibbutz just to issue the psak. So he said, I can't issue the psak until I hear the cry of the little chickens. <laughs> I have to hear the cry of the little chickens to fully identify with what they're going through and what this kibbutznik is going through. So until I would go there, it wouldn't be an appropriate psak. So we'd travel 30, 35 minutes in the snow just to hear the cry of the little chicklets, of the little baby chickens. Now, what does this story represent? First of all, it represents psak. Rav Amitav would always tell us, you can't paskin from a computer. Psak has to be personal. Psak has to be interactive. Psak has to be the human level. He would tell us, if someone wants to paskin in a Shabbos elevator, he should first try to live on the 10th floor. And then when he knows how important the Shabbos elevator is, then he should issue his psak. Not, of course, that you would trample halacha, but there's always a human element in psak. If a rich person comes with a chicken upon which the milk fell, then you'd be more machmir. If a poor person comes, you'd be more mekel. If Amitel said to Paskin about an iguna, you have to meet the iguna. You have to see what she's going through and feel her pain. So psak is not something which is um, abstract or absolute or just data information or data mining. Psak has to be in response to human need. And to sense that human need, you have to go hear the cry of the chicken or go live with that uh, on the 10th floor or go meet the iguna and see what she's struggling with. And in general, Rav Amitel, Rav Lichtenstein was a, was a classic brisker lamdan. He would discuss abstract brisker concepts. 
Rav Amital, they say someone who once knew Rav Amital when he was uh, a bachur in Chevron told, uh, told us once that he would go to sleep with a stack of Shalos Vachuvas on his bed. He would just read Shalos Vachuvas before falling asleep. He was an expert in tens of thousands of Shalos Vachuvas. And when he would give Shir, he would quote all these Shalos Vachuvas. His Shir were, it was not based on Rebchaims and Rambams, it was based on Shalos Vachuvas. And the Shalos Vachuvas is really a human element because every Shalos Vachuvas. Every shale is written about a human need in a particular context, describing the story. And with Ramitel, you felt a real sensitivity to human conditions, sensitivity to human suffering, sensitivity to human predicaments. The second part that this story always represented to me is as follows. It's a little bit more abstract, but it's probably a more important point. If you juxtapose those two stories, the cry of the baby and the cry of the chickens, one is a metaphor. There's no baby crying. Rav Amital, when he met with Tamidim, there's no baby crying in the room next door. It was a metaphor. Amisel's crying. The nation's crying. There are needs that can be likened to the cry of the baby. It was an ideological metaphor. We live in a period of history in which the Jewish people have needs that have to be attended to, particularly by B'nai Torah. Whereas the cry of the chickens were real cries. These little chickens crying and screaming, and of course the kibbutznik that came and asked the question who was about to suffer an uh, irrecoverable financial loss. What it means is as follows. Very often we have people who are very ideological, and Rav Amital was very ideological. Sometimes you skip the human element. So everything becomes prophetic, and everything becomes ideological, and everything becomes, well, we're living through Tanakh, and the cry of the baby, and the stories of the Tzemach Tzedek. And sometimes you forget that there are real people involved, and you forget their emotions and their emotional needs. And Rav Amital, and to a degree, Rav Lichtenstein, it always started with human experiences and human emotions. It's not as if the ideology wasn't there. Of course, it's a very ideological place, and these are very ideological people, but it never came at the cost of human emotions and realizing experiences that real humans were living through as human beings, not as ideologues. So let me give you an example to help you fully um, appreciate this. Do you remember a couple months ago, during Yom Zikaron, Ophir Shire came and spoke, the father of Gilad Shire? Ophir Shire was an alumni of Yeshiva. His son Gilad is one of the three boys who were kidnapped in the summer of 2014. I think yesterday was the fifth anniversary, there were memorials. So he said that in his Shiva house, all the Rabbanim were coming and saying, your son is part of the Asara Haruge Malchos, your son is in Shemayim with Rabbi Akiva, your son led to such achdos, and ideologizing the event. And it clearly was an event with a lot of ideological resonance. Three boys that are kidnapped right in this area between Kevar Rachel and Marisa Machpela and Haruge Malchos and Ramos and Nefesh HaKidosh Hashem and Letta Sach Achdos. But Rav Amital, excuse me, Rav Aaron, he said, was at the Shiva and immediately was able just to feel what he was going through, Ophir, the father, just as a father who lost his son. The same way you'd lose your son in a traffic accident, or you'd lose your son to cancer. There's a raw pain that a father feels that you can't cover up like mascara or cover up oh, because of the ideology, because he's in Shemayim, because at a, at, at a fatherly level, you just miss your son. You want to be with your son. You want to hold your son's hand. You want to hug your son. It's not a question of, be, I can ha- have consolation because of all. And this happened like, very, very often in Ravar and Ravamital. It wasn't just the ideology but it was real human experiences, and those experiences and emotions come first. And very often you see people that are very ideologically charged, they don't have the ability to think about our human emotions, because everything is so highfalutin, 
as ideology is, and everything is so abstract, and everything is symbolic, and everything is metaphoric, so every person becomes a metaphor, and every event becomes a metaphor, and you don't process it through human emotions, you process it through ideology and metaphors and Tanakh and prophecy. So I think these two stories always represent it. You can't hear the cry of the baby until you hear the cry of the chickens. <laughs> until you hear the cry of the chickens, you're just becoming lost in ideological claptrap. But first you have to hear cries of chickens, human beings, and then, of course, you want to leap to a level. Always remember in life not to get lost in the ideology when there are real human beings that are suffering. So that story in the juxtaposition is, first of all, a story about Psaac, but it's also a story about how to be careful not to smooth over human experiences through ideological contraptions or calculations. Okay? Rabbi Amitav would always tell the following story in Parshas Yisra. Parshas Yisra, you witness Moshe Rabbeinu, day and night, and he's so tireless and he's so exhausted that his own father-in-law is worried sick. Nevoltibol, you'll wilt, you'll 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 crash. You can't single-handedly carry all this burden of dealing with everyone's questions and and So Yisro encourages his son-in-law Moshe to delegate. What was Moshe involved in? This is before Har Sinai. Point to the postures, if you hold that this text is sequenced properly. So, what was Moshe discussing with, with, with Amisrael? This is before her scene. How many Mitzvahs could they actually they could study Gidanashas and maybe they're having questions about Yesh beginning to be Tam or In beginning to be or the Gidanashas Asurbana. They maybe were discussing the Rismila, maybe the Halacha Ritzicha, Zayim Mrs. Bene Noach, but what's the big deal? It's not as if they had Kalata or Kula to study. So, Ravamitab would always tell us the following story. I may be embellishing a little bit, but I'll just tell it as straightforward <coughs> as I can remember. About a Hasidic Rebbe would be receiving all of his Hasidim with their various needs. And one Hasid came in and said, Rebbe, I really have a problem. My wife is, is very ill. She needs her unfortunately, and she's been very sick. So the Rebbe gives him some advice what to learn, how much stucker to give. Davin and Ritashlema's wife should have her for Shlema. Then the next chassid comes in and says, Rebbe, I don't know what I'm going to do with my daughter. She needs a shidduch so hard for to find a proper husband. So the Rebbe sits and talks with him and considers his requests and his needs and says, look, your, your daughter should have a shidduch. Here's a good segula. Learn this mishnayos. Give this stakka Davin this way and your daughter shall find a shidduch. Then the next person comes in and Rebbe, Rebbe, I just don't have Parnassah. I don't know how I'm going to earn, earn a living and make ends meet. I just can't do it. So the Rebbe listens carefully and patiently and offers, dispenses various advice and learn this and give this stuck on Davin this way. Finally, it's late at night and the Rebbe is walking home with his shamish and he's exhausted. And all of a sudden, a chassid comes running down the street says, I need to speak with the Rebbe. I need to speak with the Rebbe. So the shamish wants to shoo him away because... After all, it's late at night, it's 3 in the morning. Rebbe's already dealt with all the Hasidim and their real problems. Let this Hasid wait until tomorrow. So the Hasid comes blurting in and says, Rebbe, I need to speak to the Rebbe, I need to speak to the Rebbe. So finally the Rebbe tells this Shamish, let him come, let him come speak with me. So the Hasid says, Rebbe, I don't know what I'm going to do. My cow has a terrible, terrible splitting headache. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's a splitting headache. My poor cow, Matilda, Mayflower, whatever my cow's name was. I don't know what I'm going to do. My cow has a headache. How can you help me with my cow's headache? So the Rebbe says, oh, your cow has a headache. This is really serious business. 
he offers him advice. This is how you should daven. This is the tzedakah you should give. These are the mishnayos you should learn. And your cow, I promise you, will have a refuah So the shamash is dumbfounded. And he looks at the Rebbe and he says, I can understand the person who needs parnasa. I can understand the person whose wife needs a refuah shalem. I can understand the person whose daughter needs a shidduch. But you have nothing better to do at four in the morning than to deal with this mashmokin and chassid and this cow splitting headache. So the Rebbe looks at the shamash and says, you don't understand. He wasn't interested in talking about the cow. He wanted to talk with me and spend time with me. He just wanted to be with me. The cow, that was just the pretext. That was just the way he was reaching out. So, I think that we got two things from that story. Number one, dedication of a Rebbe. And not just dedication to give the next year in Ravaron. It so incredible dedication to give the year of our land and what a plane in America and give 12, 13 straight hours of shear. I mean, it was almost a machine. He had no, no weakness. Dedication to give shear. Of course, dedication to the Talmudim. But Ravami felt toward his dedication to people, and dedication to people's needs, a little bit as I spoke about yesterday. They tell a story about Moshe Feinstein. Very similar story. At some point, he had too many people asking him questions, so he had to hire a male secretary who would sit there in the front room and process people, make appointments, and then they go into the back room to speak to Rav Moshe Feinstein. One day, a very vivacious, uh, loud lady comes walking in the room with her high heels and her low-cut dress or the equivalent and says, where's the rabbi? So the shamash is trying to shoo her out. He says, do you have an appointment? Do you have to make an appointment? She says, I don't need an appointment. Where's the rabbi? She says, making a big scene. So finally the shamash gets someone to shoo her out the door. You're making a big scene. You're embarrassing. And, and then she says, but I want to speak to the rabbi. And all of a sudden, you see Rav Moshe opening the door and waving her in. So, of course, she walks by the shamash and must have some choice words to say to the shamash. And she goes into Rav Moshe's inner room, and she spends an hour with Rav Moshe in the room. And all of a sudden, what, what must her question be that Rav Moshe has to tackle this for an hour? After an hour, she comes out, and the shamash very sheepishly says, like, I apologize for, for not admitting you, but I have to ask you, what took an entire hour with you and Rav Moshe Feinstein? He's a really big rabbi. She says, big rabbi? He's my neighbor. I have a relative who lives in Russia. I don't speak Russian. They don't speak Yiddish. I don't speak Yiddish, they don't speak whatever. And they write it to me in Russian. My neighbor Moshe, he knows Russian. So whenever I get a letter from my relatives, he sits and he helps me translate it into English so I can understand what my relatives are speaking about. An entire hour just helping her translate her letter from a Russian. Milikadolim aren't just there for shiurim and for mitzvot. They're just there as human beings, as people. And, and Moshe Feinstein was just a neighbor. For us, he was Rav Moshe Feinstein, but to this woman, he was Moshe. And this Rebbe was just there to, to, to commiserate with his chassid about his cow. The second thing is, of course, Rav Elifel had tremendous emotional intelligence, understanding human needs, and in particular, that whenever you're involved in communication, there's always two levels. There's what's being discussed, but there's also connecting and spending time together. I think a little bit in our day, this is a challenge because we're such rushed schedules and running from place to place that even when we do cut out time and carve out times for communication, we communicate about the issues that we have to deal with, the question, the need, the project, the, the, but the, the, the art and the experience is just spending time together with someone. And the communication is just the front. It's just the expression of that time spent we just don't have as much time as we used to but you should try to find those moments especially with relationships that you have to invest in long term 
just to find time to be together, even if the communication is just the front, you're just talking about cows and splitting headaches of cows, you'll be surprised. Sometimes you don't even have to talk. Have you ever been involved in a relationship, an experience of that relationship? We haven't talked at all. You're just sitting next to each other, just enjoying each other's presence and physical presence. We're not even talking to one another. Have you ever, instead of reading, because screens are very much rabbit holes where you climb into your screens and you're really not. It's very hard to, like, I remember, like, on Shabbos, past Shabbos, I was learning, my wife was reading the newspaper. I just said, let me come and sit on the couch next to her. Let me read my safer. Well, she weren't talking. She was reading hers. I was reading mine. But we were experiencing one another in a way that we couldn't if we were just watching videos together. Because the videos would have dragged us into a place that was very much individual rather than collective. So this is a famous Ravamitel story. People know it as the cow story. Other people call it my cow, my cow. But um, one of the famous Ravamitel stories about emotional intelligence, about being there as a person, mindfulness, and about the, the dual layers of communication. So here's an interesting story. Let me make sure I get it right, because this is actually written up about Ravamital's father-in-law. Ravamital married Rav Isra Zalman Melser's granddaughter. So his father-in-law's name was Rav Tzvi Huda Melzer. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Rav Tzvi Huda Melzer helped him conceive of Hezder, when Ravamital was thinking about the yeshiva, what Hezder should look like. He would talk a lot to his father-in-law. So anyways, at one point, um, Rav Amital told us the story, let me get this right, that went to the dentist. And the dentist wanted to give him anesthesia before he drilled or filled filling or whatever he was performing. So Rav Amital's father-in-law refused to take anesthesia, even though it caused him pain. Why? Because pain is scientifically proven. Pain is not a feeling. Pain is psychological. If you have a second of pain, it doesn't hurt you. Pain is because there's a duration, because you remember how much it hurt you in the past, and that weighs on you. You anticipate it hurting you in the future, that weighs on you. If I just gave you a second of pain, it would feel like a pinch, or it would feel like a, when your foot falls asleep, there's little tingling needles, because you know it's going away. This has been scientifically spoken about, the pain. Many people feel animals don't really feel pain. Even though they yelp and they screech, those are just instinctive responses. But if you don't have memory and anticipation, it's hard to feel pain. I remember learning about this when I was around your age. And then like that, that Friday, my mom asked me to go bring pizza for the family. So I was bringing pizza out of the pizza store. It was boiling and my hands were burning. And as soon as I got to the car, a second or two before, it stopped hurting. So no, that's exactly what I studied because I anticipated that the pain would end once I got to the car and brought the pizza into the car. So he said that since pain, since pain is memory and anticipation and fear that that all builds up, then it's a chisaron in your emunah nekadosh because fear and emunah nashem don't, don't reside. So um, you only have to be afraid of a baruch not of anything else, not even of fear. You shouldn't be afraid of fear. Okay, so I'm not recommending this practice. When you go to a dentist, please feel free to take anesthesia. But one of the traits that I think Rav Amital taught us is the trait of courage. Now, courage, some people describe as the uh, suppression of fear. That's not altogether true. Courage sometimes is suppressing fear. Sometimes courage is also operating under the influence of fear. You can't eliminate fear sometimes. But are you paralyzed and crippled by it? Are you able to supersede it and work effectively even when 
you feel fear. And to me, Rav Amitai was the most courageous person that I ever met. And I'll tell you how I think the courage expressed itself in his life and how I think I try to imp- implement it in my life. But I think, and Rav Amitai never put these two together, nor did I ever hear anyone else put them together. This is my own observation. When he would tell stories about the Holocaust, he had several near, near-death experiences, two or three, where basically it was over and the SS guard had caught them and the gun was put to his head. Or, and... To a degree, once you go through those experiences, everything else is small change and everything else is is, is trivial. And I think that to a degree that, that created a very courageous person. Obviously, what was important is that Ravamital pitched or cast courage, the ability to overcome fear, the ability to, to operate under fear, as part of your relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that if you really fear Hashem and you fear Hashemayim, that can't cohere with the fear of anything else. Yerushalayim means you fear Hakadosh Baruch and you fear nothing else. And anytime you fear other things, then at some level, again, it's tolerable. Everyone has their emotions, but at some level, that's a chisaron in your Yerushalayim. Now, how should you use courage? What things scare you? How do you? When do you employ this tool? So obviously, the first level is events in life. They could be major tragic events, dramatic events like the Holocaust. It could be. Um, relationships in life that you're afraid to pursue or you feel that are difficult any predicaments, challenges and any part that life the outside world, the external world throws a lot in your way that frightens you and you have to you have to be careful that you respond with courage and that, that courage is driven by the fact that you're not afraid of anything but a sparkle. the second thing which could cause fear is other people, not other events in life but other people and there could be social pressures and not to respond, not to cave to social pressures, not to succumb to social pressures. Um, if you feel that you want to fulfill the Ratzin of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and you feel there's just a lot of people who are denying you and frightening you, Rav Amitav would always quote the Pasuk in Devarim, Lo Sagurum one of his favorite Pesukim. So Lo Sagurum is stated in a context of a Dayan. Don't be afraid of an influential or powerful person, but you should indict them and adjudicate or process the case even though that person has spheres of influence but Rav Amitav would quote the Pasuk in a more general sense Lo because if you're then you're not as fearful of a Kurdish Baruch as you could be so it's not just with life's predicaments but it's also human beings their opinions, social pressures that will in some ways crimp your ability to serve a Kurdish Baruch and then finally, the, sometimes the scariest predicament that requires courage is not events that happen in this world that frighten you or not just people's opinions that could um, shrink your your freedom and your choice but internally the, the, the courage to make change in your life the courage to be something else the courage to uh, I, I tell a lot of people the the um, there are three steps to real change in life honesty courage and commitment you have to have the honesty to look at yourself in the mirror. You have to have the courage to actually say, I want to be a different person, and the commitment to see it through and to execute. A lot of people have the courage to say, I want to be a different person, and and it lasts about a day. And then two days later, all their commitments begin to shrivel. So you need those three stages, but certainly a middle stage of courage, it takes a lot of courage to, to change whom you are because it's the unknown. Anytime you're facing the unknown, it's very frightening. So it's not a typical trait that you'd read about in, say, for a Muslim, but it's a trait that Ravamitel um, reflected, spoke about in his stories, and was able to associate with uh, with Yerushalayim that if you're afraid of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, if you have Yerushalayim in all of its details and, expl- and and variations, then you're not really afraid. You shouldn't. You should be less fearful of life. Okay. Very interesting story. 
Rav Amital approached his Rebbe, and um, his Rebbe in Europe was named Chaim Yehuda Levi. And this is his last meeting with his Rebbe, when Rav Amital leaves Europe, and he flees the Shoah, and he's going to Israel, and it's pretty clear to him this is the last time he's going to see his Rebbe. He's going to be killed in the Holocaust, his Rebbe wasn't coming with him. So we look at Rav Amital's our Rebbe, here's a story of Rav Amital and his Rebbe. And Rav Amital asked him, Rav Amital writes about this story in one of his farms, he said, what will be of all our great dreams? We wanted to learn Torah and spread Torah, like the Torah Ladir, and these dreams are all collapsing, they're all disappearing. So his Rebbe told him, well, what were our dreams? Our dreams were not to study Torah, our dreams were the Kaddish and Shemayim, by studying Torah. And evidently now, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to be Vakad Hashem Shemayim this way, so Vakad Hashem Shemayim this way. Kiddush Hashem. This short little story, obviously, uh, yet, you know, it's hard to, to know exactly what went on and what the connotations were. But one of the major revolutions in my life that Rav Amital created was to be able to see my life and, more importantly, the Ark of Amisra as not just a personal in the case of my life or a national trajectory in the case of Am Yisrael, but essentially living Hashem in this world. And the more Hashem is present in this world, the more Kiddush Hashem, the less Hashem is present in this world, the greater Chilol Hashem. And Hashem's presence is a function of not just personal behavior, but Am Yisrael's rise and fall. When Am Yisrael rises, Hashem's presence is felt more palpably. When Am Yisrael falls, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence is felt, felt less palpably. And he quoted a battery, a battery of Makaris, no matter not Bishua Secha, when we ask Hashem for a Savior, we ask Him to save yourself, Bishua Secha, it's not Yeshua Seinu, but when you save us and rescue us, your name will be cemented or solidified in this world. The Pesach says, Vayosha Hashem Vayamahu Asisyo Miyad Mitzrayim, Al Tikri Vayosha, Ela Vayivasha, Hashem didn't save Amisah, but He saved the Shechina Vayivasha. So this was a very powerful sense of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, two things, really, that, that thinking about Hashem's presence in this world, and not just thinking about it in terms of how many mitzvahs I perform, but also the rise and fall of Am Yisrael's stock, and Am Yisrael's fate in this world. And Rav Amitel said so many times that the Shoah was the single greatest Chil Hashem in 2,000 years. It wasn't just a mass murder attempt at the Jewish people, but it was a desecration and an attack and an assault on Hashem's name. It was the darkest period for Jews since the Chirm Mesa Miglasheni, and it was the darkest period for Hashem's presence in this world. And he saw the state of Israel as a massive Kiddush Hashem, not to make up or compensate Chas Hashem for that Chil Hashem, but at least to restore Hashem's presence in this world. Now, I saw this very palpably in two different events in Rav Mital's life. So this is an event that took place in 1944-43 in Europe with his Rebbe. In 1995, Rav Amital, 95, maybe 96, joined a left-wing government, the Paris government, as a minister. And a lot of people just didn't understand why he was doing it. They thought, oh, he's a lefty. And the truth is he had a lot of connections with that world, not because he agreed necessarily with their politics, but because you can get along with people you disagree with and find common ground, which is becoming a lost art in today's world. The politics of hate, the politics of division, the politics of anger. You can't get along with people you disagree with politically. But you can listen to his speech, and it's recorded. It's an audio recording. In the Space Matters, why he's joining a government that was actively involved in what was known as the Oslo Accords and giving back land and making peace arrangements in those days. He's had two reasons. 
First of all, because he thought, and people thought those days that they were about to give back territory. So they wanted to be an insider so they could affect the process and rescue as many of the settlements as possible. So it's really what one would say a right-wing move, but I don't know why using those terms. But he said also the notion that a Rosh Memshalah, Jewish prime minister, was assassinated by not just a from person, from assassin, but by someone who was raised within the Hesder world. This was a Hesder student. He had attended the Yeshiva Karim Bia. This was a Hesder student. That was a Chilol Hashem. And he had to restore and respond to that Chilol Hashem with a Kiddush Hashem. And the Kiddush Hashem of a Rav serving in the government, not as a minister of education. He wasn't there because he was the head of a party. He really wasn't the head of any party. He was there, there should be a rabbinic figure in the Israeli government. He was there because they wanted to have a, a, a bridge, not, not because it was a political need, not because they wanted his Knesset seat. He had no, he had no seat, he had no party. It's not like today you have Rabban and we're in the Knesset because they're the heads of parties, because they can bring X amount of votes and Y amount of seats. He was just there because he was a rabbi, because he represented the Torah. He felt that it was his responsibility to be a Kaddish and Shemayim. He was not eager to do it, he was not a politician, he wasn't excited to be a minister. He did it The second time I saw this was in the mid-twos. There was a very sad uh, story that took place in New Jersey where there was a ring that was uncovered of organ smuggling, of people smuggling organs, kidneys, paying to have people. It was basically very, very uncouth and uh, really contemptuous, but basically people who needed organ transplants instead of going through the normal system they would pay money and have smuggles. And I don't know what this exact story was. But I think there was also other some illegal, other illegal activity involved in the money laundering. I think also, and they discovered it was a ring of, I think mafioso people that were involved, people in the mafia, and also assisted by rabbis in local towns in New Jersey. And on Thursday, in one of the tabloids, this is before we had internet, but somehow we saw a picture of the tabloids. There's a picture of one of the tabloids of one of the Rabbanim with a long beard and a black hat being taken away in handcuffs by the police because he was arrested. And Rav Amital spoke that Friday night and he had nothing political to say. He wasn't saying whether he, he wasn't excoriating or criticizing Rabbanim yesterday. That, that wasn't the issue. He was just saying that he never thought I'd have to see this scene again of Rabbanim being led away in chains and in and, and handcuffs and the Chil Hashem. It's just he wasn't talk about the morality of the, or the immorality of that issue at that moment it was just the sense that he had worked so hard for Kiddush Hashem in this world and now this was a reversal of that event I'll just end with a famous part because you say it so often every Friday night every Shal Shudas that captures all these stories I like to discuss stories in this slot but sometimes it's just a vart that's so powerful Rav Amitav would always tell us the vart in the name of Slanam Rebbe Sounds like there are three parts of that phrase. Even when I'm walking in the valley of death, I'm facing danger. I'm not afraid of any harm. Because I feel your presence. So it sounds like there are three phrases. And that's how you create the grammar. Rebbe said, no. Switch the word. When I'm in the valley of death and I'm facing challenges and hardships, I'm not afraid. But what really bothers me is not my personal fear, but ra kiyataimadi. It hurts me that you have to suffer also, Kaddish Baruch that your Shechina has to suffer with me. Ra kiyataimadi. Not lo ira ra kiyataimadi. Lo ira. I'm not afraid. Ra, but what really, really pains me is kiyataimadi, that the Shechina has to suffer the same way that I'm suffering. So this was the aspect of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, probably one of the most important things I picked up from Rav Amitav. And that started with that story with his Rebbe when he left Europe and said goodbye to his Rebbe.
for the last time. Okay? Have a good day, everyone.